turn to Paul's letter to the Romans. And we come to verse 18 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 18. And our message this morning is the revelation of God's wrath. The revelation of God's wrath. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let us pray. Our Father and God, we come to your word. It's a hard word and a difficult word this morning. But we pray that by the help of your spirit, you would teach us, you would humble us, you would lead us into the way of truth. So be with me as I speak, rest upon me. Each of us as we listen, give us understanding Strengthen and sanctify your people. And save sinners, we pray. Save those apart from Christ. We pray this and ask this in the blessed name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. In the Western world, there has grown increasingly a lack of concern about a, personal, about a personal need of the gospel. For more than a century, and especially in the last 50 years, the church in the West has been overwhelmingly preaching a message of what has become, what has come to be known as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. This belief holds that God exists, but His purposes is solely to make individuals happy and to ensure that their personal lives are enjoyable. It's a message of the American dream. It emphasizes material success, such as having a good paying career, a decent retirement plan, a nice house, a beautiful family, and if you have children, making sure that they are well educated. However, if you don't have children, your pets can take the place of your children. And plus, they're likely to be less expensive. The five core beliefs of MTD, that is, moralistic therapeutic deism, are as follows. And let me say where this comes from. A, a comprehensive study years ago was conducted on the beliefs of the general public. 
And these were core beliefs of the general public. And other organizations since that time, such as Ligonier Ministries, have also demonstrated the prevalence of these beliefs. Again, this is moralistic therapeutic deism. Here are their core, their five core beliefs. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on the earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, listen to three. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Let me say that again. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And let me make a few comments about this point. What we believe and feel about oneself has in itself become a religion. This religion is promoted by psychology, it's promoted by every branch of our government, from the military to public education. And corporate America has made this a business and advertising model. And it has largely taken over the visible church. And it is especially evident in Christian books, sermons, and in worship. Four. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Five. Good people go to heaven when they die. Contrary to that widespread system of beliefs, the Bible teaches, for instance, in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, there is none good, no, not one. And as the name suggests, moralistic therapeutic deism, it presents a distorted understanding of God, humanity, sin, and ultimately, what is the good news? What is the gospel? That's what we're pressing against when we come to passages and sections of, a section of Scripture like we have entered into this morning. Paul's teaching in this next section that we've entered into, he's given us an introduction, a greeting in this letter to the church at Rome. And then in verse 16 and 17, we saw last week as we celebrated Reformation Sunday and the Protestant Reformation, we came to that a little snippet in verse 16 and 17 that was mightily used by God in the life of the reformers, especially Luther and the recovery of the gospel. And that truth of justification by faith alone. And that, as I mentioned, functions like a thesis statement, a purpose statement for the rest of the letter. But now, beginning in verse 18... Paul's teaching in this next section of the letter 
It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult and it's going to be hard for the modern mind. Paul will act, Paul will act like a prosecuting attorney. And he will be relentless, pointing out our sins before God and declaring us guilty and condemned. In the last section, in the previous section, we learned about the revelation of God's great and good and gracious gospel. You remember verse 7? Look at verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 17. Now notice the wording here. For in it... In it, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is what? Is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And in a way of reminder, as we move into verse 18, remember this, that the righteousness of God in verse 18 does not refer to God's inherent righteousness, that is his, what we think of these, these, the attributes of God's morality or holiness, if we could use that kind of language, or his righteousness and fulfilling his promises, or his retributive justice. It's not just talking about that. Although these are all revealed in the gospel, they're not exclusively related to it. Instead, what Paul has in mind here when he says righteousness of God, it refers to the righteousness that Jesus Christ Achieved by obeying the commands or the laws of God and bearing the punishment that was due unto us, he bore the punishment of the law on the cross for us, for believers. And this righteousness justifies believers in the sight of God. And it's called the righteousness of God. And it's received through the instrumentality of faith alone. And that's in contrast to the righteousness of fallen human beings. This section, beginning in verse 18, will take us all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20 before Paul's done. He will come, he will come, And set forth the sin and the depravity and fallenness of Gentiles. And if the Jews are sitting in the room going, that's right, Paul, get them. Then he will turn to the Jews. And then he will have his way with them. And then when he's all done, he will tell us that the whole world is under sin and guilty. And that all have sinned. All, Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, if verse 16 spoke of this universal offer of the gospel, remember, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek or the barbarian or the Gentile, He will now make this gospel mandatory. 
As I said last week, Paul will not only put us on our knees, but he'll place us on our faces before God. And he will do this in a universal way, Jew and Gentile, all mankind apart from Christ stands condemned and guilty. Again, if if verse 18, in verse 18, we see for the wrath of God is revealed. When we get to verse 21 of chapter 3, he'll pick back up the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. After, After, again, hammering away on our sin and our guilt and our condemnation. After he gives us this bad news, he'll then move into the good news. In verse 21 of chapter 3, he'll then say, but now, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And if, again, if we want to understand this righteousness of God in verse 17 of chapter 1, verse 22 explains it to us. This righteousness of God, he says, verse 22 of chapter 3, even the righteousness of God. Look at this. Through what? Through faith. In who? In Jesus Christ. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And again, he will do with a universal sweep or scope. He'll go to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. That's where he's taking us. So in verse 16 and 17, he's he's emphasizing the universal scope of God's saving mercies of the gospel to offer to all people who believe. However, as we're about to see this morning, he stresses that it's necessary because all mankind, this gospel is necessary because all mankind is currently in a state of sin and rebellion against God. And without the gospel, we will all eternally perish. Calvin, John Calvin commenting on this section here. Listen to these wonderful words. Calvin says, notice further how extraordinary and valuable a treasure Does God bestow on us through the gospel even the communication of his own righteousness? I take the righteousness of God to mean that which is approved before his tribunal. Oh, as that, on the contrary, is usually called the righteousness of men, which is by men counted supposed to be righteous. But then Calvin calls the righteousness of men, he says, though it be only a vapor, a vapor. So now the apostle, now he he draws our attention to the revelation of God's wrath before teaching the the specifics of Jesus Christ's saving work. He uses now this next section, starting at verse 18 and continuing again up to to chapter 3, verse 20, to teach us the universality of sin and the condemnation of all mankind. Paul wants to, us to grasp, and he wants to emphasize our great need of the gospel. He's essentially, listen church, he's essentially presenting us the bad news before he gives us the good news. 
And so we should learn something from Paul here in the way that we evangelize. That at some point we must present the bad news and then give the good news. Men, women, and children must see their need of the gospel. So let's listen as we launch into verse 18. And over the coming weeks, this entire section. And it's essential that if you're here this morning and you've never by faith embraced Christ and His work in the gospel, His his work on the cross, dying for sinners, risen from the dead, You've never embraced Christ for salvation and life. It is essential this morning and through these coming weeks that you begin to learn and see your desperate state and your unrighteous standing before God. Until you recognize this reality, you'll never see your great need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll never see the true richness of grace and mercy that has come to us in the gospel. And as Christians, we who've embraced Christ by faith, as we move through this chapter, we should be filled with thanksgiving and praise to God that He's redeemed us. And we should be reminded of our sin and our previous guilt apart from Christ, that we would be moved to worship and praise and also stirred in knowing and realizing that those around us, friends, family, co-workers, the, the world without Christ is perishing. It should move us and stir us to action in spreading the gospel. So let's begin this journey of growing in our understanding of what the Bible teaches about God and about ourselves. We're learning here what God teaches about Himself, about God, and we we are learning about ourselves. Those are essential. Verse 18. Three points this morning, and they all begin with an R. Number one, verse 18, we have the revelation, the revelation of God's wrath. The revelation of God's wrath. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's revealed. God is making something known. There's a revelation, an unveiling, a making known of something by God to us. And in this case, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And... It is in the present tense. This word revealed is present tense. It's not just that Paul is speaking of the wrath of God that is to come. Now in chapter 2, verse 5, he's going to mention that. Look in chapter 2, verse 5. In chapter 2 of Romans, verse 5, But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There will be a day. And that day will come, that great day, when we will all stand before the tribunal of Christ, of God, and give an account. 
And even you either stand there based upon your righteousness, which Calvin says is, is but a vapor, or you will stand there clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You will have an advocate and a lawyer who will jump in front of you and go, Father, he's with me. But Paul uses here in verse 18, wrath in the present tense. You could, it could be read like this. The wrath of God is being, is being revealed from heaven. The Bible speaks of our salvation as something that we have saved, we were saved. It will use present tense. We're being saved, we will be saved. It, there's something like that here. There is a judgment that has been declared upon all mankind since the fall. It, there's an ongoing judgment and wrath of God on the planet that we all, we all sense and we're all reaping it and there will be a day of final judgment. And here Paul is speaking of a wrath that is being revealed from heaven. Now this language here that we see here, the wrath of God, this language, the modern man or woman, they, they find the wrathful, the wrathful God of the Bible as distasteful, offensive. He's just unacceptable. The very idea that all mankind are sinners, that all mankind lives in a state of rebellion against God and therefore under the wrath of a holy God, it's offensive to the modern mind. But this is exactly what the Bible teaches. But understand, when we speak of God's wrath, God's wrath's not like man's wrath. And it's not like man's anger. It's not like the cartoon of a thermometer that's red and then it gets so hot it bursts. The wrath and anger of fallen man is really filled with poison, as John Stott said. It's filled with poison. In other words, fallen man, in his wrath, we fly into a rage, a sinful rage. Our wrath, our anger has all kinds of sin and poison in it, but not so with God. God's wrath, God's holy anger, we should understand it in light of His holiness, His righteousness. We should understand God's wrath in light of His holiness and righteousness and think of it as a a retributive, a, retribu a retributive justice toward sin, sinners, rebels. In, in other words, we're not saying, here's God's wrath, and the opposite end of the spectrum would be His love. We're not saying that. But we, and what we're not saying is, or, or what we want to steer clear of is here's God's wrath and that just can't be true and somehow God's just neutral towards sin. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. He's not neutral towards sin. He's holy. He's righteous. He's God. A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink, would describe or define the wrath of God like this. Listen to this. Quote, he says, The wrath of God is eternal destation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evil doers. God is angry against sin because it's a rebelling against his authority, a wrong done to his invulnerable sovereignty. Insurrectionist against God's government shall be made to know that God is the Lord. End quote. Strong words. Well, let this sink in for a moment. We've heard statements like that you don't find in the Bible. Often used in our day. God loves the sinner, but what? But hates sin. You ever read that in your Bible, Tracy? No, it's not in there. No. The Bible doesn't talk like that. Does God send sin to hell or sinners to hell? He sends sinners. Can you have sin? Can you have sin apart from rebellion in an individual or creature? No. Let me give you examples. These are hard words. I know they are. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, listen to Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 23. And then I would declare to them, I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. Matthew 25, verse 41. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And we know we have that, that apostolic definition of sin that helps us in 1 John 3, 4. 1 John 3, 4. Here's the definition of sin. 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. There it is. We need to understand the seriousness of this doctrine concerning the wrath of God. You will have difficulty understanding the, the teaching of the Bible until you grasp what the Bible's teaching about God's attitude toward unrepentant sinners. Again, listen to the psalmist. Psalm 5 5. 
The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You, that is God. Hate. Hate. The vice president said this last week that all forms of hate will not be tolerated. I think we basically know what she meant. But listen to the words of Scripture. You, that is God, hate all workers of iniquity. Psalm 130, verse 3. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What's the answer? None. Leviticus 20, verse 22 and 23. Leviticus 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land where I'm bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. Verse 23. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I'm casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I, that is God, abhor. It means to loathe. I loathe them. (sighs) Psalm 7, that we read this morning. Psalm 7, verse 9 in the call to worship. Psalm 7, verse 9. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. But establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense, verse 10, is of God who saves the upright of heart. Verse 11, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, that is the wicked, he, God, will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. Verse 13, he also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Understand, if you leave here this morning, hear this one thing. If you leave here and never come back, be very clear. I want you to understand. God is hostile to everyone and to everything that is in opposition to Him. God is hostile to everything and everyone that is hostile to Him, and He will judge it and defeat it and bring it to its end on that day. When the Bible describes us even in the New Testament, listen to the language of the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now... Listen to how He describes us. As sons of disobedience. We were sons or daughters of disobedience to God. Verse 3, among whom also we all, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And listen to this. And were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. So how is this wrath of God How is this wrath of God revealed? 
as we move through this chapter, we'll see, actually through this entire section all the way to chapter 3, we'll see a number of ways of how it's revealed. But immediately we're going to see, moving through chapter 1, it will be revealed in idolatry. Idolatry. And watch this. It will be revealed in judicial abandonment. Where he gives mankind over to their sin. In chapter 1, I just want you to notice these verses and we'll come to them in the coming weeks. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, therefore God also what? He gave them up. He turned them over. He gave them up to uncleanness. Verse 26, for this reason God, what? Gave them up to vile passions. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God, what? Gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. There will be this threefold of giving over, this threefold aspect of a judicial abandonment of God turning fallen man over to his sin. And Paul says, How is the wrath of God revealed? Look around. God has turned man over to his sin. Man isn't in a place of moral neutrality. He will begin to unfold what we would think of as the depravity of humanity, as a revelation of the judgment and wrath of God upon fallen man. So we have the, re the revelation of God's wrath. Let's move to the next one. Again, verse 18, we see secondly, if that was the revelation of God's wrath, number two, we see the reason for God's wrath. The reason, the reason for God's wrath. It's there in the second part of verse 18. He says, this revelation, this wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And here it is. Here's the reason. It's against all what? ungodliness and unrighteousness of men against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There is the reason of God's wrath. We should probably see this expression, ungodliness and unrighteousness, as some, to some measure, the two tables of the law. against God and against our fellow man. Ungodliness, the term that we find here, has this prefix un. It, it's, it's, it's negative and it's, it's, it's an opposite force, as you might think. We think of words, for instance, we say that's unfair, that's unjust. What we mean, it's, it's not just or fair. When Paul says ungodliness, he's saying it's not godly. It's ungodly. 
It's ungodly behavior. I mean, it's, it's a lack of reverence toward God. It's to live in a such a way that's contrary to the teachings of the Bible, to the religious beliefs and systems and, and practices that are found in the Bible. Paul will eventually move through a long list of sins that finally leads to even this great sin of idolatry. And so our hearts, as we will hear in the coming weeks, are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories in our fallenness. Idolatry is not just bowing down to a, or worshiping a graven image. Idolatry is what, happen when it, it's what happens when anything becomes ultimate, an ultimate concern above God, whether it's money, possessions, education, sex, a house, and children, our pets. <laughs> the list is endless. That's ungodliness. The second reason he has is not only the violation of the first table of the law and that which is ungodly, but he says it's unrighteous. Unrighteousness. Again, it's not righteous, it's unrighteousness. And this has, you think of it of a, of a moral force in this sense, to not live righteously. It's to live contrary to God's revealed law and word. And over the next chapters, he's going to explain what is ungodly and what is unrighteous and what it looks like. But that's the reason for God's wrath. Because man is a rebel. Man is a sinner. Man is fallen. Man is ungodly and unrighteous. And then lastly, look at verse 18 again. If we've seen the revelation of God's, right, uh, God's wrath, the reason for God's wrath, number three, we see the response, the response to God's wrath. Verse 18. What is the response of fallen man to God's wrath? Men who live in ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What do we do? Look at the last part of that sentence. Who, sub, who do what? Suppress. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress. Again, it's a verb. Present. Active. It, it means to hold down. To hold down. To repress to restrain. Think of it this way. Holding down a large spring or coil. You, can, you, you push it down, but it wants to do what? Pop back up. You, but, but you keep pushing it down. We put constant pressure. We resist it. We, we suppress it. If we let go just for a moment, it will unfold. But we keep holding it down. That's how we respond to the truth of God as fallen creatures in our depravity. We're beginning right here in these opening words. Listen, we are beginning to see what God says fallen man does 
with the truth. We suppress it. We suppress it. There's a truth that comes to us, a truth that we see. Paul's going to say even in creation, there's a truth we hear from the Word. There's a truth upon our conscience as image bearers of God. All of these things will come our way. But how do we respond rather than bending our knee to God and saying, yes, majesty, holiness, righteousness, God, gift from God, Christ, forgiveness. What do we do? We press against it. We resist it. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Again, Paul is giving us insight into the unregenerate man, woman, and child, and our mind, our depraved mind, the will, our will. We suppress the truth by the will and in the mind, we're beginning to see that fallen man's not in a neutral state. We're not in the neutral state. Fallen men, unregenerate men, women, and children, we are truth suppressors. And this is a central mark of the unregenerate mind. In John chapter 3, Jesus would teach this. In John 3, verse 19 and 20, listen to this. John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. What do men love? Darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were evil. Verse 20, For everyone who practices evil hates the light, And does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Again, before we're done, these hard words, the traumatic words upon our psyche, we hear them and we suppress it. That when grace comes, when God comes through the instrumentality of His Word, by the Spirit and grace through the Gospel, we hear, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Do you hear that? Being justified, being declared righteous, not guilty. That's chapter 3, verse 24. Being declared by God because of Christ. Being declared freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And God, God took, look at verse 25. Verse 25 of chapter 3. This is where we're headed to the glorious gospel. Look at verse 25. Whom God set forth. He set Him forth on a cross as a propitiation That is a wrath-bearing, wrath-satisfying sacrifice by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed 
to demonstrate, verse 26, that at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier as the one who has faith in Jesus. This wrath that's being revealed that is upon each of us, as John again would say in John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Our way of escape, the way of rescue, the way of redemption is Jesus Christ. In our state of rebellion, our state of suppression, our state of unrighteousness and ungodliness, the judgment of God has come upon us. But the good news, if that's the bad news, the good news of the gospel is, is that God has made a way of escape through His Son. His Son who would bear that which is due unto me and to you. The penalty of His wrath and judgment and death. Eternal condemnation. Stephen Carnock, again, the Puritan of old, said this. Listen to this. He says, quote, Certainly, if God could have hated sin without punishing it, His Son would never have felt the smart of His wrath. But He did. And He became a propitiation for our sin because God cannot sweep our sin and rebellion underneath the rug. We're running out of time. Let me say this this morning. We have many weeks of some application on this, but this morning, in the shadow of God's wrath and the reality of it, I hope that as God's people, we're starting to see, and if you are here, if you are here apart from Christ, you are starting to see that, it, that in the shadow of God's wrath, you can see and begin to see the brilliance of His grace shining like a thousand suns. Let us not take lightly His wrath and judgment. Let us fully affirm the holiness of God the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God, that we might see the greatness and glory of the gospel, be propelled to urgency, to spread it, and to embrace it for ourselves. That's the marvel of the gospel. That God is the justifier and the just of the one who has faith in Christ. May we be a people of the book, the full counsel of the book. If you're here this morning apart from Christ, I pray you've heard these strong words. They've shaken you to your core. This morning, come to Christ. Believe in Him and trust in Him by faith. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ alone where you find forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God, heaven as your home, eternal life as a gift from God. And saints, let us praise Him for the great salvation that He has given us in His Son. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, Warrington, Virginia. 
If you live in Northern Virginia, please join us for worship this Sunday. For more information, please visit us online at covenantrbc.org.